Go ahead and grab a seat. If you have a Bible with you, whether you're here in the room, watching online, go ahead and open up to Hebrews 13, um, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, uh, chapter 13. As you turn there, I want to open tonight um, by speaking to you for a minute or two about the subject of oatmeal. Now, now I admit this is, this is a very strange way to open a sermon, um, and I'm not even sure that I like where I'm going with this, but I'm going to go for it, okay? Here, here's what happened about a week ago. I was up here in the Calvary offices. If you don't know where the Calvary offices are, you go out that door, hang a left, right in there. I worked there Monday through Thursday. It was about a week ago. It's middle of the afternoon, and if you work in an office, you know what that like middle of the afternoon hunger is. You had lunch, it's kind of worn off. Some of you are nodding your head because you know, and then dinner's a little ways away, so I had the afternoon hunger, so I went into our little break room, and that can be a dangerous place because sometimes people are like, we love the church staff, so here's a box of donuts, and I have four, all right? That's what I do. So I went in last Thursday, and, and lo and behold, on the table where the food always is, that there, there was a stack of instant oatmeal. Now, now, here's the deal. I used to eat oatmeal for breakfast almost every day. I used to eat oatmeal all the time, and it used to be like a go-to breakfast, a go-to snack for me. But it has been years since I ate oatmeal. But I'm hungry. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Dinner's not quite here yet. Lunch is starting to fade. I'm getting a little bit cranky, and everyone who works for me knows it. And so I decide I'm going for it. I'm doing the oatmeal. And it was delicious. It was, let, let me ask this. Who here had oatmeal today? Anyone? Anyone there? Okay, all across this room. Oatmeal's amazing. All right, I had totally forgotten about it. It was like this thing that I used to love, this thing I used to devour, and I had totally forgotten about oatmeal until last Thursday. Can I tell you what I did? I went over to Costco. I bought a hundred pack of oatmeal. Now it is sitting in my office. I have had oatmeal constantly. I am the oatmeal king this week. It's like I have rediscovered oatmeal. Now, why? Am I telling you about this? Track with me here. There was this like wonderful thing in my life that like I just completely and totally forgot about until it was like put before me without me even asking for it. I walk into the break room. There's all the oatmeal there. I decide to do it. And I rediscover something that I realize I actually have always loved. I just totally lost track of. And here's what I hope for you tonight. Here's what I hope for all of us as we gather in this space tonight. Um, I was thinking about the, the notion of what it means to kind of lose track of something you love and, and then kind of rediscover something. And once you rediscover it, you start to be really excited about it. You start to devour it. You start to want it all the time. And I think about this when I think about what we do in here when it comes to the Bible. Um, tonight, we're, we're going to close off a series we've been doing for about seven weeks now, maybe longer, um, on the book of Hebrews. And what we decided to do is rather than go through the entire book of Hebrews, which would take like years, we decided to just take this little chunk at the end of it and work through it slowly. But I want you to know this. As we close out the book of Hebrews tonight, my hope for every person in this room, every person who's watching us online tonight is this. My hope for you is that you wouldn't just go like, yeah, book of Hebrews, did that, okay, cool, and move on to something different. But rather, here's my hope. That just like last week, I discovered, rediscovered oatmeal. My, my hope is for some of you, you would go, wow, this, this book of Hebrews is probably not something I've spent a ton of time paying attention to. Like, I've always known it's there, but my hope is that for some of you over the course of this series, you have rediscovered this spectacular New Testament book. And, and again, this is my great desire for everyone here. My desire is not merely that you would go, great, I consumed the sermon content over the last seven weeks, but rather that you would go study this thing on your own. Like, I want you to know that's always our desire. Our desire is to put before you the scripture in such a way that stirs you up and makes you hungry for more, that reminds you of how good the scriptures are, how delicious it is. And I use that word delicious intentionally because the scripture talks about that the word of God is like honey to my lips. It is like the bread that sustains me. It's something I crave and desire and want. And so again, tonight we're gonna finish off the book of Hebrews, but here's my hope. My hope is that through going through these seven weeks on the book of Hebrews, it's reignited a rediscovery of this beautiful New Testament book so that you can go enjoy it on your own. So that's why I'm talking about oatmeal. If that made no sense to you, great. Let's go to the Bible on that. Mostly, and they will. Hebrews chapter 13. And again, verse 18, we're gonna close it out tonight. It says this. It says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. So, so right from the beginning of Hebrews, the thing you'll recognize is Hebrews is not a signed New Testament note. 
In other words, we don't exactly know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we're certain that this individual who wrote the book of Hebrews is someone who is a pastor, they are very intelligent, they know Greek really well, they know theology really well, and they are deeply in love with Jesus and want the people who are receiving this letter to be in love with Jesus too. But but here's the thing I want to point out to you tonight, and I think this is so interesting in our current context. What's clear for me from Hebrews chapter 13 uh, and verse 19 here is that when he says that I may be restored to you soon, what he is indicating is that currently he is not with them. He's not with them in person. We don't know why he's separated from them. We don't know why he's not together with the congregation. But what's clear from this verse is he is separated from them in person, and yet... He is connected to them through, and this will be interesting, he is connected to them through technology. Now, I know when I say technology, you might kind of be mystified by that because we don't tend to think of technology as having existed before like the 20th century. But the technology that he is using to connect with this group of believers, the technology he is using when they are physically apart to be bonded together is the technology of the letter. And we don't think of letters and writing as technology. We don't think of letters and writing as some sort of technological feat. But the truth is, all throughout human history, there's been technology that's been invented. Technology like the fire that allows you to have light and to cook things. Technology like the wheel that allows you to push things along in a faster manner. Technology like all sorts of little things. Even the chair you're sitting in right now is a technology that humans came up with. And one of those technologies is the letter And the letter gave the people a capacity, even though they were physically separated, to be spiritually together. But what I want to point out is that even though technology is connecting them together, what is the author of Hebrews' desire? His desire is that he might be restored soon. In other words, this technological connection we're having is great, it's helpful, it's wonderful, but I want to be with you in person. So let's just kind of talk about the current moment in light of this. Um, I believe the New Testament burden, anytime believers are separated, is it's okay that we're separated. It's okay that we're separated because we have the spirit that bonds us. We're connected by technology, but we desire to be back together. And I think that speaks into a moment that we're having right now as a culture. It speaks into a moment where we actually spent some months, really even a year here for some of you, where you could not be together physically with other people, but technology allowed you to connect, though you were physically distant. So let's talk about that tonight. I'm teaching tonight that the New Testament burden is that we would be together physically. And I want to speak to you, especially if you're listening online tonight, and make clear what I'm not saying right now. If you're listening online right now, if you're not able to be with us in person, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to knock you or look down on you for not being here physically, not being here in the room. I know some of you are at home right now because you are high risk for COVID or you live with someone who's high risk for COVID. For some of you, you're at home right now because you're high risk for COVID and no one even knows that because you just haven't told them and everyone makes assumptions about why you're at home, but you know that that's the right choice for you. I have nothing bad to say about that. I believe that for people who decide this is the moment where I need to stay home, I'm not looking down on that at all. In fact, I'd put it this way. This last Sunday, um, every Sunday, my wife and I, we come to church here at the the 11 a.m. service here at Calvary. We sit right up there in the rafters. This last week, she didn't come. Why didn't she come? Because our children were sick, and she needed to stay home with them. She wanted to be here in person, but she watched online because technology allows us to connect in that kind of way. But here's what she would recognize And here's what I want all of us to recognize tonight. When we think about technology, when we think about that in the last year, church online has become kind of a bigger and a more normal thing in our culture. I do want to make this statement, despite how much I love that we can connect online. Here's my statement, that online engagement is a short-term supplement, not a long-term substitute. It is a short-term supplement, not a long-term substitute. So again, for those of you who are online right now, And you're listening to me going like, is this Calvary being mad at me for not coming back? It is absolutely not that. But I want to say that it is a short-term supplement. And maybe that short-term is this year of COVID. Maybe it's longer for you if for some reason you can't come back as quickly as others. Maybe it's a short-term supplement because you live in a different state and you haven't found your church yet. Maybe because you're sick or you're homebound. Again, a million good reasons to watch online. Listen, it is not a long-term substitute for being in person. 
There's something that happens when we are embodied in a room. There's something that happens when we show up together. There's something that happens when you show up and you're face to face and the people of God are gathered in a space. And I want us to recognize that. And I know I'm speaking to a group of people right now as I look around that are in the room here physically present. But here's why I'm speaking to you. Because here's what I've seen. It's a pattern over the years. Sometimes what happens is people are showing up to church in person. And then they decide for whatever reason, good or bad, to begin watching online for a season. And then what can happen is if it's not a supplement of, I can't make it to church, so I'm going to watch online, but it becomes a substitute. Here's the pattern I've seen too often. It's someone who comes to church, and they're in present, they're embodied in worship, and they're present, and then they decide to step into the substitute of watching online. And then what often happens is they're watching live in the moment that the services happen, but then what happens is sometimes they start to skip the service and say, I'll watch it later. So they go from in the room to watching live to watching later. And then for some people, not all people, but for some people, it drifts into, it goes from in the room, watching live, watching later, to not engaging at all. Here's the reason. Because God has built us to be in person. God has built us to be around. Again, we as a church shut down everything. We didn't let you come for 17 weeks because we believe that short-term supplement is sometimes needed but it's not a long-term substitute. And the burden of the New Testament authors, especially if you read through the letters, the epistles in the New Testament is, I want to be together with you. I long to be in person. I love to be there. I want to be with you. And I want to encourage us as we kind of emerge at some point here into this post-COVID world to remember the value of being together. In moments, we may need to supplement online, but it's not a long-term substitute. It goes on this way in verse 20. It says this, it says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what's going to happen here in the book of Hebrews is it's going to close with what a lot of the New Testament epistles or letters close with, and that is a benediction. Uh, A benediction is sort of like a statement. It's a formula that's given at the end of a letter, given at the end of a thing. Uh, Oftentimes it's given at the end of a church service that sends people out and it wraps up the letter. And we're actually going to take some time picking apart that paragraph I just read because I think a benediction tells you so much uh, about what a people and what an author actually believes. Uh, And here's what's so cool. Let me speak to you tonight if you're not a Christian. If you're listening online tonight, or if you're in the room tonight, you're not a Christian, you're new to church, you're not even sure what you believe about church, here's what I think is so cool about the night. You showed up on this night, and on this night, we get to look at this benediction, and we get to think about what these people actually believe. So again, if you're not a believer in here, I want to give you permission tonight to lean in, to see what Christians actually believe, because I believe so much is wrapped up in this benediction, in this formula that he uses at the end of the book of Hebrews. Um, We'll dive in. If you can actually go back one slide on this. We're going to go back to the beginning. It says this, now may the God of peace. Uh, I want to point this out. Uh, I want to point out how interesting it is um, that the first way he describes God in this benediction is not the God of glory, not the God of power, not the God of might, not the God of creation, but rather as the God of peace. And one of the things I want to constantly remind you of and bring you back into is that this peace, the peace that comes from God, the peace of God, the peace we have with God, is right at the center of what it means to be a Christian. So again, if you're new to Christian faith, you're not sure you're a Christian, I want you to understand this clearly, that any version of Christianity that does not lead you to peace is not true Christian faith. I'll say that again. Any version of Christianity, any pastor out there, any church out there that is proclaiming Christianity and it doesn't lead you to peace, it is not true Christianity. Like true Christian faith should always be leading you toward peace. Why? He's a God of peace. What do we have? We have the peace with God when we're forgiven of our sins. We have the peace of God that comes into us because God is with us and we feel this comfort and peace in this world. And I want you as believers, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, to be constantly on the lookout for any version of Christianity in a sermon, in a church, in a book, in a song, on social media, any version of Christianity that does not lead you to peace, you should be immediately suspicious of. Uh, Can I give you some things to look out for? I want you to beware Christianity that makes you angry, 
and self-righteous. Like if there's a kind of Christianity that just kind of makes you look down on everyone who sins differently than you, that is a false kind of faith. If there's a Christianity that makes you look down on all the people who you see as sinners and degenerates and bad people, it is a false kind of Christianity. This Christianity runs rampant, by the way, on college campuses because college campuses are basically like these horrible, terrible places in terms of like all the sinful, wicked things that are going on. And then what can really quickly happen is like a Christian club can form on campus. And it's like a Friday night and everyone's out there partying and getting drunk. And here's the group of people who are just kind of like angry and self-righteous and looking down on everyone who goes to school with them. Beware any kind of Christianity that makes you angry, self-righteous, that makes you condescending to people who sin differently than you. Beware any kind of Christianity that's constantly stirring you up to be angry at the other. Beware any kind of Christianity that turns the enemy into people who believe different than you, think different than you, pray different than you. Beware any kind of Christianity that makes the enemy anyone other than the evil one, the devil himself, okay? Beware those kinds of Christianity if it does not lead you to peace. The next one, I want you to beware of a Christianity that that makes you constantly fearful of the future. I want you to beware of that kind of Christianity. This is kind of everywhere right now. If you turn on the news, if you go on social media, I promise it won't take you more than a minute or two to find a Christian commentator who's going to tell you how afraid he is for the future of the United States of America. You'll find them. You'll find them everywhere. There's just this constant fear. It's this constant, well, they're going to pass this law and do this thing, and this is going to change. And what about our children and all of this fear? And hear me, listen. I got two kids under the age of three. I think about their future all the time. I think about what kind of country and world they're going to grow up in. But can you hear me on this really clearly? If I believe in Jesus, I should be less afraid than other people, not more, right? Right? That's what it should be. But then you just kind of go on the internet and you see these Christian commentators who are just like, I can't believe it. The sky is falling. We're all going to die. Beware of that kind of Christianity. It's fear-based. Like, beware the kind of Christianity that's always afraid about the future of the church. Like, beware the Christianity that's like, well, once churches started singing the hill song, then things went downhill. You're like, beware that. But beware the Christianity that's like, the church is gonna crumble and everything's gonna fall and all our progress is gonna be lost. Beware that, because Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. Right? That's what he said. So beware that kind of Christianity that doesn't lead you to peace, but rather it's just making you constantly anxious about the future. If the people you follow on social media or the pastors you listen to on your podcast, every time you like hit pause and hang up or like move on, you're like more anxious and concerned about the future. Maybe it's not Christianity they're preaching, but something else. Listen, beware of that. I want you to beware of this. Beware of Christianity that makes you hungry for political power. There was a, a Christian theologian I was listening to recently who I love and respect. I think really highly of this guy. And yet he was talking to someone else in this conversation on a podcast. And what he said was this. It was so interesting to me. He goes, I'm really concerned um, because I think if the church would really mobilize, then we would have the political muscle, the political might, the political power to push through. And then he named his policy preference. And I was just so aware in that moment of how much this guy's Christianity was really built around mobilizing voters rather than making disciples. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Or take it this way. This summer, um, I gave a sermon with our senior pastor here, Sean Thornton, and one of our key points, like one of our big things we were standing upon is that we as a church, Calvary, are willing to flex our methods as long as our mission and method can go out. And what we meant by that is we're willing to meet outside rather than inside as long as we can still make disciples and proclaim the gospel. I felt like that was a pretty uncontroversial statement. It was not. We got many emails, many angry people, many people outraged with us because we decided to flex our methods, but keep our mission and our method message the same. And I'll never forget, it was a message about flexing our methods, but keeping our mission and our message the same. And here's an email I got, I'll never forget it. And I had a good exchange with this individual who sent it. It was, it was really good. The individual said, I get the idea of flexing our methods and flexing kind of how we do that. But he goes, isn't it time to flex our muscle? I thought about that. I went, yeah, man. We're a big church, right? There's a lot of us here. Big social media presence, a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of influence in the area. Isn't it time to flex our muscle? 
But then I thought of Jesus who says, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. I thought about how Jesus came into this world. And if anyone could have flexed his muscle, it would have been Jesus. But what does Jesus does? He humbles himself even to death and death on a cross. I said, no, 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 no. As Christians, we never flex our muscle. It is not about power. It is not about accumulating might. It is not about getting the world to conform to what we want it to be. I want you to be aware of any kind of Christianity that seems to think of you primarily as a voting block because you're not a voting block. You are the bride of Jesus Christ, ransomed and redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You are not a voting block. You are the church. Beware of anyone who's stirring you up for political power. And then finally, I want you to beware of Christianity that makes you insecure or ashamed. I want you to be aware of any kind of Christianity that makes you constantly insecure about your sin. I want you to be aware of any kind of Christian messaging you're listening to, that when you listen to it, you just feel icky and gross and disgusting like God would never want you. I want you to be aware of any kind of Christianity that makes you ashamed to even talk out loud about your sin and your struggle. I want you to be aware of any kind of internalized messages you've got inside that says, I have to pretend I'm perfect every time I'm in church or else they'll reject me. I want you to reject any kind of Christianity that makes you insecure and afraid because the good news of the Christian faith is that you have nothing to be insecure and afraid about. You have nothing to be ashamed about, not because you're not a sinner and not because you haven't fallen short, but because Jesus on the cross hung naked and ashamed so that you would never have to feel that way ever again. That's Christianity. What what, what does this author of Hebrews begin with? He says, may the God of peace, and I just have to wrestle with some of you, like is the kind of Christianity you're listening to, thinking about, reading about, uh, allowing to kind of saturate your mind, is it filling you with peace or is it making you more anxious than ever before? It goes on this way in verse 20, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, we're going to go back to the beginning of verse 20. Um, It says, now may the God of peace, and then it says, who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought forth from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Let's linger on those words, the blood of the eternal covenant. Um, One of the biggest challenges early in my ministry career Uh, When I was becoming a pastor, I I was kind of becoming a pastor and coming into like professional church ministry preaching in in like 2008, 2009. And if you don't kind of remember that time, some of you were like younger and some of you are kind of close to my age, so you'll remember. That was kind of a time in the church where the big thing was like, whatever you do when you preach, don't offend people. And like the whole thing was like, get up on the stage and tell them you're awesome and you've got it and you're good enough and you're strong and you can do it. Like it was this whole like self-happy, clappy kind of build people up, never really talk about the hard edges of Christianity. And that was what was being taught to me. It was what I thought we were supposed to do. It was what I thought you were supposed to do. Like, yeah, reference the cross of Jesus, but then move on to all the other things on how people can go and live. And I'll just never forget one of the mentors in my life, a boss at the time, a pastor at the time, just just really confronted me about that and really confronted me about this fact um, that the cross of Jesus is not something we just get to jettison in order to impress people. And I just want to kind of remind you of that here in this space tonight and remind you of what's true for us as a church, um, that this blood of the eternal covenant might be an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It certainly seems out of step in 2021, right? It seems weird to talk about the blood of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the death of Jesus. And there's some people who just kind of want to downplay the death of Jesus. But I just want to like stand here and tell you, we will, be ne- we will never be a church that does that. We will never be a church that kind of moves on to the cross, from the cross to more important matters because there is no more important matter. This is the center of our faith. I want to be clear. I'll say that again. The cross and blood of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of our faith. His glorious resurrection is what makes that so, but it is the cross of Jesus that has our hope. It has our faith. Our salvation is found in it, and we will never downplay it. And here's why. Because I believe that downplaying the cross of Christ is the fastest way to heresy. Downplaying the cross of Christ, downplaying the blood of Jesus is the fastest way to heresy. If you don't know what heresy means, it means believing something that makes you outside of the bounds of Christian faith. Heresy is to believe something that is contrary to what the scriptures teach. It is to believe something that will lead you astray in your Christian faith. And here's my observation. That throughout church history and in our world today, The people who walk into heresy, the people who find themselves completely missing the point of Christian faith are the people who have missed the cross of Jesus. Like the cross of Jesus doesn't even factor into their thinking. Let me give you a few thoughts. It's like this. You forget the grace of Christ and you become a legalist. 
Like when you downplay the cross and when you don't talk about the cross and when you don't think about the blood of Jesus, you forget that the grace of God came through that and you become what we call a legalist. A legalist is this. If you behave good enough, God will love you. If you don't do the bad sins that you're not supposed to do. And in Christian faith, that's like three things. It's like usually like alcohol, drugs, it's sexual sin, and sometimes bad words, but not so much anymore. Sometimes it's really those, right? And it's like there's all these other acceptable sins, but if I don't do the really bad sins, then God will love me. And some of you have actually come to internalize that. Like you don't think God loves you because of your sin, and that is legalism. The idea that you are saved or you are justified or loved by God because you, whether or not you sin, like that, that is legalism. But you know what else is legalism? And I think actually more of you buy into this. Um, it's legalism to believe that because I sin, God doesn't love me. That's legalism and it's heresy and you should reject it. Here's what else is heresy and you should reject it. I read my Bible a bunch this week, so God must be real pleased with me. I showed up at church every week for four well, it was three weeks, but one, yeah, it's a lot. I show up at church a lot. And so God must love me more. The reason I got a promotion last week is because I've been praying like crazy. And God, God was responding to my prayers. Prayers go up, blessings come down. That is legalism. It's legalism. The idea that somehow you can manipulate God into his love and his grace and his favor, it is legalism. But when we point to the cross of Christ, here's what I go. God had no reason to want anything to do with me, and yet he loved me anyway. That's the only truth. And anything else that's like, well, God really loved me because I was spectacular, so he went to the cross, is absurd. And so we don't forget this. We, when we downplay the cross of Christ, we forget the grace of Christ, and we become a legalist. Or here's what else can happen. We can forget the sacrifice of Christ, and we become obsessed with political power. We forget that Jesus came into this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We forget that Philippians 2 says the one, the king of heaven seated on throne uh, on high, the creator of all the universe, it says he emptied himself. Like he humbled himself and he walked among us as a human being and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Like here at Calvary, we talk about living and loving like Jesus. And let me tell you, there is no version of living and loving like Jesus that also involves you wanting to ascend to power. And if that's what you want, and again, if you want the church to just be this voting machine, if you want us to even not be a voting machine, some of you are like, no, 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 I get that. But then something happens in the world and you want us to get up here and proclaim an ideology that you believe in deeply. Listen, sometimes we're gonna comment on things, but sometimes that's not gonna happen. And when you start to become obsessed with power, when you start to become obsessed with the idea that the church is this place that's meant to like control the rest of the world, you forget the fact that Jesus came into this world not to control us, but to lay his life down for us. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. I'm not saying you can't be a politician. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying you can't even advocate for a party or a preference or a platform or a bill. All of those things are fine to do. But if you become obsessed with and you think the church should be obsessed with political power, I would submit to you it's because you have downplayed the cross of Christ and you have forgotten the sacrifice that he gave for you. Next one is that you forget the seriousness of sin and you begin to take holiness lightly. Um, here's the strange thing that I found. The people who are obsessed with the cross of Christ, who are constantly thinking about the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for you, that his body was broken for you, those people who are so convinced that there is nothing they could do that would possibly make God love them less, here's the irony. You would think those people would go on and sin more, Right? If the people are convinced, like, there's nothing that I could possibly do that would take away the sacrifice of the cross of Jesus Christ for my, my, my sins and for my salvation, you would think those people would just go on sinning all the time. But I, do you know that I found that to be the absolute opposite? That the people who are thinking all the time about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the people who take holiness the most seriously. And the reason they take holiness seriously is because they realize that their sin was serious enough to pin Jesus to the cross. The more you obsess about the cross of Jesus, the more you wage war on your sin and fight for holiness. Holiness doesn't come from you being afraid that you might not be forgiven. Holiness comes from you remembering the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, we will never be a church that downplays the cross of Christ. And part of it is we cannot be a church that downplays the cross of Christ. What, what do I mean by that? Let, let, let's talk for a second um, uh, about um, the cross of Christ and, and just one tiny little part of that story. So I'm going to show you Matthew 27 here um, and verse 33. We'll put it up here on the screen. It, it says they, and this is the people who are crucifying Jesus, they came to a place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull. 
And so what happens is Jesus is sentenced to death and they give him a cross and he's carrying his cross and they drag him up on top of a hill. And why'd they put him on a hill? It's because they wanted everyone to see that this pathetic little savior you have, the Roman empire is putting to death. It was a public spectacle of killing Jesus. That's what it was. So much so that they brought him to a place that was so well known for death, it had a name and the name was Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, if you go to Israel today, there's a lot of debate around like where was Golgotha. You can imagine people for thousands of years have been trying to figure out which one's Golgotha and which little hill did Jesus die on. And the actual answer is it doesn't matter. Like we believe there was a hill, but it's not like if you go stand on that hill, then your sins are forgiven. But here's what you would observe. If you went to Israel, you might just see a hill that looks exactly like this. If you look closely, you can really quickly realize why they might call that Golgotha. And I know in the age of Photoshop, it looks like I'm making this up, right? It looks like I just kind of like played with this. I'm like, here, but I was in Israel in 2019, in November of 2019. You can see this. You cannot go up to the bottom of it. And here's the reason for it. There is a company that has bought the patch of land underneath it and has turned it into a bus stop. That's what it is. It's a bus stop. Like right over here, if you're like here looking out to your left, there's like this little garden tomb area. It's this like wonderful place where Christians can go and think about Jesus. Bus stop right there. Okay, that was for free. That's why sermons go long. I'm sorry. Okay, anyway, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Later on in Christian history, um, they would translate that word Golgotha into the Latin Bible. And forever, the Latin Bible was like the standard Bible in all of the world. And when they translated the word Golgotha into the Latin Bible, the word for Golgotha got translated into a word in Latin called Calvaria. And Calvaria is where we get the English word Calvary. So if you've ever wondered why we're called Calvary Community Church, what does Calvary mean? It gets mixed up sometimes with the cavalry, Right? Recently, there was a politician who treated like, the, the Calvary is coming. And everyone was like, no, you did it wrong, right? We are Calvary Community Church. What does that mean? We are a church that is centered around the cross of Jesus Christ. We are a community of people who remember that Jesus Christ died on this cross for our sins and for our salvation. We are a people who remember where Jesus died. And every time we speak the name Calvary, we remember this is the place where Jesus died and this is our only hope. Amen? That's who we are. That's Calvary Community Church. That's what we're all about. And we will never be a place that downplays the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me show you the next part here. It says again in verse 20, it says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. It's an interesting little phrase here. If you read the Gospels, Jesus uses this shepherd idea all the time. Like all throughout the New Testament, especially the idea that we are sheep and God is our shepherd is like this powerful metaphor. We get into all the things that means on how God guides us and he loves us. And sometimes he's got to break our legs in order to carry us on his back. And there's like all sorts of beautiful metaphors of you being sheep and God being the shepherd. So it should strike you as kind of odd that in the last 10 years, especially, maybe it's older, but I haven't recognized it till the last couple of years, the word sheep or sheeple has become an insult, right? Isn't that odd? Isn't it odd that this idea that like we are the shepherd, that like God is our shepherd, he is our great shepherd and we are his sheep, that's become this insult. And the insult is like, well, if you're a sheep, it means you just go along blindly and you just don't even think for yourself and you're a sheep or you combine sheep and people and sheep, wow. Right, like that's what you do. And, and so here's what happened. Um, somewhere along the way that became an insult. And then here's the tragedy. Somewhere along the way, Christians started thinking that was cool to use for themselves. And somewhere along the way, Christian leaders started thinking it was okay to say sheep as an insult to people who disagree with them. That's why this summer I saw this tweet, and maybe some of you saw a similar sentiment, uh, but I started to see this tweet popping up all the time. It said this, that sheep is a strange insult for Christians to use. Yeah. Also, insults are a strange things for Christians to use. <laughs> and I thought about that. And I thought about that last week when I was reading a Washington Post article about a, a pastor. And this pastor and his church are very politically engaged and angry and he's this huge personality and everyone knows him and everyone's fighting with him, fighting the government, political power. And I was just reading through the article and you know, every time church intersects with something like the Washington Post, I'm like, oh, what would we do now? Um, okay, right. But, but I'm reading through this article and, and I'll never forget, I get to this part where it says, from time to time, he, he looks out at the people at the world and he calls them sheep. He, he, he brays at them. He goes, bah, sheeple. And I thought to myself, 
Like what possible place does insulting people who don't agree with you have in the pulpit of a church? Like what possible place does insulting people you don't agree with have to do in your life, child of God? The answer is nowhere. The answer is nowhere. Uh, like again, I know this has become like a popular phrase, popular meme, popular idea. Maybe even this year you see people going along with things that you don't agree with and you're tempted to use it. Can I urge you to stop? Child of God, can I urge you to stop? And if you do it, repent of it right in that moment. The insults have no place coming out of your mouth. Here's why. Here's why. Because justifying the use of insults because I'm right and they're wrong is about as far from Christ-likeness as you can possibly get. It's not Christ-like. Insulting someone, speaking down to them, especially calling them a sheep, like that is as far from Christ-likeness as you can possibly get. You cannot imagine Jesus being in this world. Jesus, who, by the way, was always right, right? Look throughout the New Testament. Jesus isn't just like standing there insulting people who disagree with him. Like Jesus speaks truth, Jesus speaks candidly, but, but listen, insults have no place in your life, child of God, amen? Like they have no place, no place in our lives, no place in Christian leaders. I just want you to be aware of that. I want you to look out for that. I don't want you to just accept how coarse this culture has gotten where insulting people is normal and you don't even think it's a big deal when a pastor stands up here and insults large groups of people. That should bother us to the core and it should bother us when we do it in our own lives. Listen, sheep, it's not an insult. It is your identity as a child of God because God is your great shepherd. Here's the um, next one we'll look at here. Uh, we'll move a little faster. Verse 20 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, verse 21, says, Equip you with everything good for doing his will. You know what the prayer is for you in this benediction? This is great. The prayer is that he would equip you for doing everything good. And I don't know about you, but that is not usually my prayer life. You know what my prayer life is? Here's what our prayer life is. Our, our prayer is usually this. It's usually, God, fix this situation. Isn't this what you do? Like beginning of COVID, like COVID, this disease comes into our world. And we go, God, take it away. And then lockdowns happen. And maybe you lost your job or maybe something got disrupted in your life. And you go, God, end the lockdowns. And then things get a little crazy with political season. And you go, God, just stop it. Right? And maybe something happened in your personal life or maybe something happened in your family or with your roommates and you just say, God, stop it. Isn't that your tendency? God, fix this situation. But can I just put your face back in the text again? It says this. It doesn't say, may the God, the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, fix every situation in your life. No. It says this. It says, may he equip you with every good thing. Like in other words, our prayer is usually God fix the situation when our prayer should be, God equip me to handle this situation, right? So at the beginning of COVID, I wish I could go in a time machine and say, God, I know this is gonna be crazy, but make me the type of man, follower of Jesus and pastor who can handle this. When the lockdowns happen, I wish I had just gone, God, this is about to be the strangest season of my life. And yet God, I just pray you would make me the kind of man who can lead my family through this. When something stressful happens in my life, when I'm overwhelmed with finances, I don't want my prayer to just be, God, give me money. I want to be the guy who says, God, equip me to live with less because that's what I'll do to serve and follow you. I want God to equip me. And you want God to equip you too. There's no part of you that actually wants to live in a world without challenge, right? Imagine if I sat you down to do a puzzle. Anyone love puzzles in this place? Anyone? Okay, handful of you. Okay, no, okay, less than I thought. Okay, all right. Imagine I sit you down to do a puzzle. I'm like, here you go. And I empty the box and it's two pieces. And they go together. <laughs> You're like, I I'm done, right? That wouldn't be awesome. You wouldn't actually get any enjoyment. You wouldn't grow. That wouldn't be something you enjoyed at all. Why? Because a life without challenge, a life without difficulty, a life without problems isn't interesting or worth living. You know it's worth living? A world like we live in that's full of challenges and problems and hard days and difficult people, amen? It is, this is what's worth living. It's worth living in a world with challenges, but God equips you to take them down. That's what we want to live in. So what's the prayer here? The prayer is, God, equip me to handle every hard thing. God, my roommates and I are fighting right now. It's not just God, stop the fighting. It's God, equip me to be a peacemaker in my roommate situation right now. It's I can't really find a, a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend right now, and I feel lonely, and it's kind of weird because we're still kind of on lockdown, but kind of not, and I don't know what to do. God, give me, no, 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 make it. God, equip me to go through this season single or not. Like, I can't make the finances happen right now. I can't figure out my career or my job. You want God to just drop a million dollars on your lap? No, no. God, equip me to walk through this season, broke or not. 
That's the kind of prayers I wanna pray. It's not the kind of prayers I pray. If I look at my prayer journals, it's not the kind of prayers I prayed. But when I walked through this, I said, you know what? God, equip me to handle this situation. It's what I should constantly be praying. Here's the final part of this benediction. It says this. Again, verse 20 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I just want to linger on this to Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to make it clear to this whole room that Jesus Christ is not a good teacher for us. He's not a moral example for us. He is a good teacher. He is a moral example, but that is not the fullness of who he is. That is not what Jesus fundamentally is. When we say live and love like Jesus here, we do not mean try to be a little more like the nice fella who lived in the first century and had blue hair or blue eyes, blonde hair, like what looked like this with a baby sheep. Like, that's not the picture of Jesus. That's not who he is. That's not what we're asking you to be. We're not asking you to be this kind of like Zen Buddha hippie type person. No, no, Jesus Christ is so much more. And here's what it says. To him be glory forever and ever. Um, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. This is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg. <laughs> so good. Or he would be a devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either that man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you may fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying it might seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis, mic drop. So good. It's who he is. It's Jesus. It's right at the center. He's not some just good teacher or nice fellow we follow after. He is God in human flesh, and he is right at the center of what this church is all about. I want to show you the final verse or two here um, in the book of Hebrews. It ends this way. Verse 22 says this. It says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly so it's interesting that this whole long book of Hebrews, he's going, that was just like a scratch of the surface thing. It was pretty brief, but I want you to bear with my word of exhortation. And bear with my word of exhortation, in other words, means he understands that a bunch of the things he just said were pretty difficult to hear, but he wants them to bear with it. And I love how brutally honest the Bible is. The Bible never assumes that you're going to hear hard teaching and be like, ah, oh, that was good. I needed to hear that. The Bible assumes sometimes you're going to walk out of church. Can we just tell you? Sometimes you're going to walk out of church being like, I don't like that preacher guy at all. He's the worst, right? Like sometimes you're going to walk out being a little bothered, kind of having to deal with some stuff. Sometimes you're going to walk out of here not loving it, but bearing with the exhortation. But here's what I'm convinced of. This exhortation, this challenge that you receive when you come to church on Thursday night, when you come to church, when you gather with God's people, here's what I'm convinced of, that how you respond to challenges, how you respond to being challenged demonstrates how mature you are in your faith. It demonstrates how mature you are. The person who says, I'm willing to be exhorted, I'm willing to be challenged, I'm willing to have someone get up in my face, that shows your maturity in the Christian faith. Listen, that happens when you're challenged in a sermon. Uh, again, sometimes I'm going to speak a sermon or someone's going to speak a sermon. It's going to challenge you. And you know what mature people do? They don't like blow it off just because something was challenging. They lean into it and wrestle with the Lord because you never owe me an answer. But you always owe God an answer. It's how you respond to a conversation or a confrontation with a friend. Uh, like a friend says, hey, listen, I see this behavior in you and I just have the courage to love you and say it. How you respond to that will tell me everything about your maturity. Uh, like if a friend in the last week has called you out and you spent the last week hating the friend and being bitter at the friend and angry at the friend, I think that says a whole lot more about you than your friend. I think to receive exhortation from a friend who says, I love you and I care about you and I love you enough to risk our relationship to say this, that shows your maturity when you lean into that. And then finally, about a conviction from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you're just reading the Bible, you're off on your own, you're doing your own thing, and the Holy Spirit just starts to press something on your heart, and your response to that shows how mature you are in the faith. 
And the most mature people I know are just willing to constantly be wrestling with things rather than pushing away everyone who would fight against them. And here's why, because they understand this, that the road to destruction, the road to destruction begins with the refusal to receive exhortation. Like your life will implode on itself if no one ever gets to call you out. If no one ever gets to say what you're doing is sinful, it's unwise, it's foolish, it's mean, it's rude, it's cruel. If no one ever gets to call you out, man, you are just on a one-way ticket to destroying your life. And I don't want that for anyone here. Final verse, verse 23, or final two verses, but final chunk we'll read. It says, I want you to know our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I'll come with him to see you. Greet all of the leaders of the Lord's people. Those from Italy send their greetings. Then he ends with this in verse 25. Grace be with you all. Grace. It's a prayer that God's grace would be with you. It's a declaration that God's grace is already with you. I want you to understand that when we talk about the grace of God, we are talking about something that you do not deserve that God has given to you freely. See, it's different than God's mercy. God's mercy is the fact that you're a sinner and he hasn't struck you dead yet, right? But God's grace is the fact that he hasn't struck you dead yet. And he gives you life another day. He builds you up. He gives you peace. He gives you joy. He gives you purpose. He gives you meaning. He gives you community. This is all grace of God. Like here's the grace and the mercy of God contrasted. I want you to imagine my three-year-old little girl who from time to time deserves a timeout, okay? Sometimes she does something and she knows she shouldn't do it. And we know it's a bad thing. I want you to imagine she does something bad. And instead of giving her a timeout and putting her in her room, we go, you know what? No timeout for you. Come with me. We sit her down at the table. And we put a big bowl of ice cream in front of her. That's God's grace and his mercy. God's mercy is he didn't punish you. God's grace is he gives you good things anyway. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that every time you breathe into your lungs, you are breathing in the grace of God because it's another breath you get from him. God's grace, I'll put it this way. God's grace, the grace of God is the oxygen of the Christian life. It is the thing we breathe in and breathe out every day. It is the thing that sustains us. It is the thing that keeps us. It is the thing that keeps us going forward on our best days and on our worst days. We recognize that the grace of God is with us. It's constantly with us. It never leaves us. Person in this room who feels like you're too much of a sinner, God would never love you. God's grace is with you. His mercy is with you. His kindness is with you. And so how does the book of Hebrews end? The book of Hebrews ends with these words. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. And here's how I want us to end thinking about this. I want us to end by thinking about the fact that grace is with us. This is a prayer for you that God's grace would be with you, but it's also an announcement, a banner over your life that his grace is with you. Listen, would grace be with you when life is stressful and overwhelming? When school is hard or when work assignments are piling up, when you don't know what you're gonna do in the future, may grace be with you when life is overwhelming and stressful. May grace be with you when you wake up filled with resentment. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just make, wake up bitter and mad and angry at the world, and it's like my heart has gotten all twisted up. May that grace of God be with you. May it meet you over your cup of coffee in the morning. May grace be with you when you don't know what to do. May grace be with you when you're unsure how to move forward, when you're unsure what to do next, when you don't know what the future holds, when you don't know who you should marry or what job you should take or what apartment to move on. May God's grace be with you. May God's grace be with you when you feel wounded and betrayed when someone's cut you to the core, when someone has wounded you, when someone has hurt you, when you feel absolutely destroyed by someone else. May God's grace be with you when you feel insecure and fearful about your body, about your life, about your skills and talents. May God's grace be with you. Listen, may God's grace be with you when someone's angry with you and you have to deal with someone else's rage and someone else's anger and resentment. May God's grace be with you. May God's grace be with you when you stumble into sin, that same sin that you keep promising you'll never do ever again. May God's grace be with you. I want to remind you that God's grace is with you when you wander from God. Like in the seasons you don't even come to church anymore, when your Bible's collecting dust, when you've forgotten how to pray, when your Spotify playlist no longer includes worship anymore and you have just wandered from God. May you remember that the grace of God follows you into the deepest pits of hell. God's grace is with you. Listen, may God's grace be with you when you wake up in the morning and when your head hits the pillow and in every moment in between you. May you know that every time you take a breath, every time oxygen goes into your lungs, there is grace that goes into your lungs too. And finally, may you remember tonight that because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and raising from the dead for your salvation, grace is with you. It is the banner over your life. It is the thing that follows you. It is the ocean you swim in. If grace is an ocean, a song said a while ago, we're all sinking. 
That's the environment you live in. And it's all because of the gospel. And here's how we remember that tonight. Tonight, we're gonna move toward communion. And communion, this little piece of bread and this cup is this visible, physical, embodied, tangible reminder that Jesus gives us to remember that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what you do, no matter what is done to you, Jesus Christ is with you and his grace is with you always. So right now we're gonna move toward communion and many of you as you walked in tonight um, took communion, had communion, uh, got one of these little things. If you didn't get communion, um, do we have, Brian, do we have leaders around the room? Okay, just, if you didn't get a communion cup just like this and you want one tonight, just slip your hand in the air. Just keep it slipped right up in the air. We're gonna get one to you. Because we're gonna move toward communion tonight. Communion is this bread and this cup and it symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus. We take and we eat as a reminder that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and we're proclaiming it as so. Tonight I invite you, no matter who you are, whether you're part of this church or part of another church, to take communion with us. Tonight, if you're not a believer, if you don't follow Jesus, if you don't believe he died on the cross for your sins and rose for your, resurre- or for your salvation, I'm gonna actually ask you to do this. Don't take communion with us tonight. It's not because we're judging you, we don't like you, we don't want you to participate. It's that taking this bread and drinking this little cup here, it's not what saves you. It's just you proclaiming that you believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's not you tonight, I just don't wanna make a hypocrite of you. So tonight, if that's not you and you're not ready to do that, you can just put it on the ground. We're not gonna judge you, we won't even know. But maybe tonight you're not a believer and tonight's the night that you need to decide you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus. You've had enough of trying on your own. You know your sin needs a savior and there is a savior and his name is Jesus. And maybe tonight you take communion as an indication that you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time. Would you join us tonight? So here's what we remember. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, this little wafer. He said, this is my body that's been broken for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we eat this bread, church, we remember that the body of Jesus was broken for us so that we wouldn't have to be broken for all of eternity. We remember that Jesus Christ bore our sins on his body on the cross and we bear them no longer. Let's take and eat in remembrance of that. On that same night, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. A covenant is the way people relate to God and God relates to them. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the cup of my blood. He says, every time you drink this cup, you remember that my blood was spilled for you. To the person here who thinks, well, I've sinned a little too much and I've got to clean up my act to be right with God. Would you take this cup tonight as a reminder that you have nothing to do? 100% of the work has been done by Jesus. You got nothing left to do. Let's take and drink in remembrance of Christ. Child of God, sinner, person who's struggling and wrestling and can't seem to get your life together, can't seem to read the Bible enough, pray enough, doesn't feel good enough, spiritual enough, seems to be sinking in your sin. Can I just remind you, there is no pit of hell you can go into that the grace of God won't follow you. Can I remind you tonight that the good news of the gospel says God's grace is already with you and it always will be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to take your cup, your bread. God, may we remember your grace in every moment between our head hitting that pillow and us waking up again and all over again. God, may we remember the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.